This podcast is brought to you by Vertex. Guys, please go over to www.vertex.com. Vertex is a technical clothing company, technical backpack company, and they make a whole variety of backpacks and range bags, everyday carry bags, and pretty damn good clothing. Um, In fact, I actually have a pair of Vertex pants that goes back to 2016. I wore them on a pilot episode for a TV show that I filmed for the History Channel back in the day. I took them through the desert. I've tried destroying these pants um, just by wearing them through briars and all sorts of stuff, and they just keep coming. Uh, They might have a whole bunch of pine sap on them, but hey, they still keep me covered and decent. Guys, if you go over to www.vertex.com, and you use the code FIELDCRAFT, that's F-I-E-L-D-C-R-A-F-T, you can get 20% off of your order. While you're there, take a look at the Tactigami. That's the folding fabric that you can use to create mag pouches, radio pouches, all sorts of accessories on the inside of the packs. Uh, It's pretty cool stuff. Um, I'm a big fan of their dedicated magazine pouches for the range. I have one loaded up uh, anytime I go just so I don't have to jam mags at the range. So guys, please go over to www.vertex.com, check out all the stuff that they have, and do not forget that code, FIELDCRAFT, to get 20% off your order. Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the FIELDCRAFT Survival Podcast. It is your host, Mike G. Yeah, I know it's been a while. Yeah, I'm, I'm been doing Mike Glover Actual, been doing uh, Mike Force Podcast, but I wanted to come back in the fold this year to talk about stories of survival for Philcraft Survival Podcast. And a lot of guys have requested this. A lot of guys have said, hey, can you talk about the lessons learned in detail? We, we do it all the time, but we do it in the training components of the company, including content for the app, the Philcraft Survival app. I, I want to do it more often because I'm very interested in why people survive and why people potentially perish and disaster. One of the reasons I started Philcraft Survival was that curiosity that I read from Lawrence Gonzalez in his book, Deep Survival. If you haven't read that book, Deep Survival, it's a great read. But his curiosities in survival came from seeing his father, who was a World War II veteran, that survived a epic crash as an aviator and survived even as a prisoner of war and came back home and had this very optimistic, positive way about him and a carefree life and just being in love with life. And he was curious to like, based off all the trauma and all the things he experienced, why would he be so optimistic? Why would he be so positive? Well, when you survive, you know, a a combat rotation, when you survive a, a disastrous event in your life, it changes the way you look at your life in, in its totality. Like all the things that you look in priority are reshuffled. So, you know, finances and all the stressors of work and all the things that you look at, those things aren't that important when you balance out like, hey man, I, I was almost not here. I mean, in one moment, I could have been um, evaporated and just been a distant memory. So that perspective you can gain from other people's perspective. It's one of the reasons I started Phil Kraft Survival Podcast nearly seven years ago, talking about my experiences in combat and war and losing a lot of friends. You know, I talk about uh, I talk about how I was going through a tough time and 
etched a leather bracelet that had 14 friends. I lost 14 friends that were very close to me in combat or in suicide. And so I, I think it's important to kind of get perspective from people's circumstances or events, but also like take a step back and go, what are the lessons learned in survival that I, I need to implement in my life and the way I conduct myself? I mean, I, I don't know, don't fly in the Andes is maybe one of the lessons learned from this specific situation. So you guys have heard about it. It's called, um, the movie actually is called Alive. It was made famous based on a 1972 crash of a Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 in the Andes Mountains. Uh, after the crash, these survivors faced extreme conditions and resorted to things like cannibalism. Yeah, they ate each other to survive. Um, they endured harsh weather, lack of supplies, and isolation until they were rescued. Now, even their rescue attempt and, and the way they went about the rescue is a profound lesson learned. And so I wanted to get into that with you guys on this podcast, and I hope you enjoy these because I mean, these are the kind of things that we want to do in the future. You know, like I said, we talk about these things um, on the app side, on the Philcraft Survival app, but we're also doing app development for SIG. Um, I mean, we, we, like to, we like to spread the love of education and all the things that we're doing across the board, but if you go to our Primitive Survival courses with Kevin Estella or with Amber in personal defense, we're taking real-time influences, including these lessons learned from the past, and implementing them into uh, the curriculum. So pay attention for that and see those little tidbits of information on the app and, and everywhere that we do education and content. So 1972, there's this crash that takes place. Now, of recent... There's a Netflix movie that documents this, which I think is a better illustration of what happened, at least in the way it's 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 told, than the movie Alive. You know, Alive's an older movie, but this new movie is a better version of it. Now, these survivors were faced with brutal conditions because of the high altitudes, above 15,000 feet AGL. After the crash, they try to survive on meager supplies from the wreckage, and they face extreme cold altitude sickness, starvation, and even, like I said, resorted to eating each other on day 16 into 17. So let me go through a little bit of the timeline here. The, the movie Alive is a gr great point of reference. It, it tells a story about this rugby team. And, and this rugby team, who are the alumni of Stella Maris College and their friends and family, were, were on their way um, through the Andes Mountains and the plane crashed in the Andes Mountains because of their lack of altitude in a storm, which had a lot of pressure. Um, they were basically flying what's called nap of the earth, um, flying through in between these ridgelines. And the plane crashed on Friday the 13th, October of 1972, with 45 people in the flight. Of the 45 people, only 16 total people survived the sub-zero temperatures. What's crazy, I thought it was really crazy as, as a statistic and, and very uh, impactful, is 29 people actually survived the impact of the crash. This lasted a total of 72 days. So of, of that, of, of that 45 people total, post-crash, 29 people survived 
And then post 72 days of experience, only 16 survived. After eight days spent searching for survivors, two of which planes were grounded, the rescue team was forced to end the search and the actual people on the ground in the mountains that survived heard about this as it was advertised on FM radio or AM radio um, on the radio they were uh, transponding to from the, the rescuer's perspective and they heard it had been completely shut down. So imagine you're in a survival situation, eight days into it, you have a radio up, you're listening to these radio calls, you're seeing planes flying around in the mountains and then you hear the search is called off until spring where they can get planes, uh, helicopters and people into the mountains at the time. Man, that had to have been um, really devastating for the people that were surviving. So consequently, survivors had to sustain life. Uh, their rations didn't last long. Um, they were able to find chocolate and other things that were in people's suitcases. And then in order to stay alive, it became necessary for the survivors to eat the bodies of the dead. This was possible because the bodies had been preserved with the freezing temperatures and the snow. This book, Alive, was published two years after the survivors of the crash were rescued. I mean, this became a huge news story of the time in 1972 based on all the things uh, that were taking place. Um, So in 1974, this was published. The author comments on the process in the acknowledgement section this very specific, specifically. And I quote, I was given a free hand in writing this book by the publisher and the 16 survivors. At times, I was tempted to fictionalize certain parts of the story because this might have added to their dramatic impact. But in the end, I decided that the bare facts were sufficient to sustain the narrative. When I returned in October of 1973 to show them the manuscript of this book, Some of them were disappointed by my presentation of their story. They felt that the faith and friendship which inspired them to not uh, emerge from these pages was, was never his intention and underestimated these qualities. But perhaps it would be beyond the skill of any writer to express their own, express their own appreciation of what they lived through. Now it, it wasn't well received. The New York Times book review gave the book a rave review according to reviewers who were reading it, but not so much on the survivor side. They described the book as an important one, which says, cowardice, selfishness, whatever, their essential heroism can weather Reed's objectivity. He has made them human. Alive is thunderous entertainment. I know the events by rote. Nonetheless, I found it electric and important. Alive should be read by sociologists, educators, uh, the joints of chief, uh, the, I'm sorry, the joint chief of staff by anyone, in fact, whose business it is to prepare men for adversity. The problem with the survivor's perspective is a lot of them were demonized because of the events that took place 16 days in. This episode is brought to you by BioPro Plus. Why do our hormones suck as we get older? Our human growth hormone and its derivative of growth factors can reduce by 50% 
by age 35. And it doesn't matter how hard you train, how good you eat. If we don't have the proper hormones in our body, we're not going to get the results we want. BioPro Plus is the first of its kind non-synthetic alternative to prescription human growth hormone. All the benefits of synthetic HGH without any of the needles, side effects, or doctor's visits. Guys, that's the ad that I'm supposed to read, and it's the truth. But I've been on BioPro myself for a year and a half, and it has drastically changed my life, my fitness, and my health in general. I suffer from traumatic brain injury from years of blast overpressure, uh, working with explosives, and uh, I don't suffer from any of the side effects anymore. My fitness is better than it's ever been, and I'm going to be 45 next week. So head on over to BioProteinTech.com. Click on the link, use code FIELDCRAFT for $30 off your first order. Don't take it from me. Go try it yourself. Now, when you look at this specific timeline, let me, let me outline this for you because um, it's telling of the very detailed specifics of how this unfolded, where the first week survivors faced all these things, uh, including the cold and avalanches and a limited uh, food supply. They found eight chocolate bars, three small jars of jam, a tin of mussels, a tin of almonds, a few dates, some candy, dry plums, and several bottles of wine. And even though they rationed the food, it only lasted one week. On day eight, an avalanche claimed more lives. On day 12, search efforts are called off and survivors face the reality of their situation. Day 16, Faced with starvation and desperation, some survivors make the difficult decision to resort to cannibalism. Now, my personal curiosity was, what does that mean? I, I mean, I, obviously, we know what cannibalism means, but what does it mean? Um, because I, I think, in a way, Alive depicted this rationing of these small pieces of flesh by very specific people. That's not what took place. According to, to the accounts, at first they were so disgusted by the experience that they could, not, they could only eat skin, muscle, and fat. But when they ran out, they resorted to eating hearts, lungs, and even brains. Ironically, I don't know if this is irony or uh, <laughs> I find it to be like telling that a day after the decision they just decide to eat people, um, when when most, if not all of them, were very devout Roman Catholics, on day 17, an avalanche devastates the plane and kills eight additional people. As the weather improves with the arrival of late spring, that's when things start to change. Two survivors hiked for 10 days into Chile to seek help traveling 61 kilometers, that's 38 miles. And on December 23rd, 1972, two months after the crash, all 16 remaining survivors were rescued. When asked by one of the, uh, one of the uh, news reporters from the survivors, what is the most single important lesson you learn on the mountain? He said, I quote, that if you have sleep, water to drink, and decent food, you are lucky. Don't wait for your plane to crash to realize how lucky you are. Be more grateful for life. You could wait for the helicopter, but don't wait too long. Now, that's really telling, obviously, from a situation where 
they were on the brink. If those two men, uh, which originally was three men, one, one actually had to turn around, did not make this 38-mile hike and they weren't prepared, they wouldn't have survived. There's no doubt in my mind they would not have survived even into the spring. So a couple of things. One, um, what can we learn from this circumstance and situation? When they flew, they were flying Napa the Earth because this is a rudiment, rudimentary plane in 1972, and it didn't have all the equipment that you would typically see um, to track, for example, weather and all the specific conditions. In fact, in this part of the world, as depicted by the new version of this, um, which let me get that for you, it's called the Society of the Snow, a true story of the Andes plane crash that shocked the world. Um they specifically noted that they were flying and they didn't have an understanding of what they were getting into and they had to fly in between one low point in the mountain range in order to make it over the pass because they were certainly flying at the capabilities of the aircraft. So now, obviously, you can get above these mountains, but at the time, they couldn't. Now, this 1972 calamity can teach us a lot about specific uh, examples in survival, including having the right skill sets. Thank God they had a couple men that were trained in specific things like field craft and how to make a fire, um, which wouldn't have done them a lot of good at the elevation, how to procure water, what the priorities are, of work would be. Um, when you look at this terrifying situation, you also see this profound instance of them having to cannibalize one another. Now, I, I think this movie, which I watched, and, and you should watch it too, The Society of the Snow, shows the moral dilemma, the ethical dilemma of them having to eat one another. At one point in the movie, uh, which is a true account, they even started telling each other and giving each other permission to eat one another um, if things got in the worst case scenario. And, and more died, which eventually that, that happened. Um, of note, um, many of the people obviously did not survive, including anybody who had a compound fracture injury. If you're injured and you have to get a higher level of care, whether that's a bleed or a fracture, the chances of you surviving long-term, especially exposed uh, and the elements are not high. I mean, uh, certainly in this case. Also of note, nobody, nobody, zero women survived this incident. Now, I don't know if that was uh, just how it worked out, but there was many women on this aircraft, including the wives, girlfriends, and mothers of some of the survive, uh, uh, people who survived, but none of them uh, survived. Um. When it comes to the situation of having to eat one another, um, I think that's the most shocking. And the, the latest example we have of that is something that took place in the 1800s known as the Donner Party situation. The, the crazy thing is we have a lot of information about this circumstance, but we don't have a lot of information about the Donner Party. Now, I found it shocking that 16 days they had to eat one another, but if you see the elements... If you see the 15,000 plus feet, the negative temperatures they were dealing with, 
they were burning a lot more calories. And we have that rule of threes, three days without water and three weeks without food. Well, that's about right. These guys started getting desperate and they essentially made the decision ultimately because they didn't want to die that they were going to have to eat one another. Now, let me look at some of the uh, details here of some of the things that you could uh, learn from the specific timelines via the uh, October, November timeline that happened during the event. October 13th, the truck crash happens. October 29th, an avalanche hits, hitting the makeshift camp. Late October, facing starvation, they start eating each other. Late November, a small group of survivors decide to embark on a dangerous journey. December 20th, after weeks of trekking, the group encounters a Chilean shepherd who contacts authorities. December 20th through the 22nd, rescue operations commence, facing challenges due to the remote and harsh terrain. December 23rd, the remaining survivors are rescued by a search and rescue team, marking the end of their 72-day ordeal. So a lot of the guys that were on this plane, one, they didn't have any experience in training in Philcraft. Uh, two, they didn't have any equipment. Um, there's actually an account in witness testimony that none of them had seen snow or played in the snow or been in the snow at all. And, and so they weren't experienced in winter survival. They also didn't have the clothing that you would see trying to survive this kind of situation. So they had to make makeshift uh, clothing in order to protect them and insulate them. And in one case, because of the snow blindness they were dealing with, they had to make makeshift sunglasses in order to protect their eyes from ultraviolet rays. So, I mean, the bottom line here, guys, is have the training and have a baseline of training. You can't prepare for all the disaster uh, variables. I mean, you can. It's just going to take a long time to do that. But there is a baseline of survival that you need to be tuned into. The, the, the staples of survival are as follows. The first thing that will kill you is hypothermia, exposure to the elements, which means, one, understand how the cold works. And two, have the training and the equipment to be able to insulate and protect you from that. It's why we say in mobility rigs or even in EDC, understand how to adequately provide base layers, insulation, and, and an outer shell layer to protect you long-term. I actually learned that hard lesson taking my kids on a backcountry wilderness hunt in Wyoming where I thought they had the appropriate layer, layers to close, but they're four years old with no body fat compared to me or any adult that has the ability to, to do that. So when you, when you look at the, the next thing that will kill you, it's going to be the lack of water. Now, they had the ability to um, melt snow, which is essentially how they survived because they were in the Andes, which had uh, high elevation, a lot of UV light and sun that allowed them to melt snow, but it was slow going. You know, that like the Shackleton expedition, it, it wasn't the biggest priority that they had to work at, worry about because they had plenty access to water. But how are you going to capture the water? How are you going to procure it? How are you going to sanitize it? And how are you going to purify it? Understand the basics of how to do that is very important. And also understanding how much water you need. I mean, you could drink all the water you want, but if you don't have the sodium, the potassium, the electrolytes, man, drinking water is not going to help you. I can tell you that from personal experience uh, and being completely dehydrated and being a heat casualty myself. Also, food 
Nobody planned, not even the airplane, in any way for first aid or for food or emergency, really, planned for any of this. They had band-aids and bacitration like most airplanes would have checking the block. So if you're on a private plane all the way to a commercial plane, do some research and understanding what that plane's capability and capacity is. And if it doesn't have it, carry that adequate supply to take care of yourself and your family. Especially if you're doing something more rudimentary, more backcountry, more remote, more austere. Because if you crash in the backcountry of name it, especially uh, somewhere remote, the likelihood of somebody getting to you is a lot higher than in 1972, but you're still going to have to take care of yourself for a longer period of time. I mean, at least at a minimum of 72 hours. So have the rations and have the supplies to be able to take care of yourself. I, I think last but not least, but certainly um, not neglecting everything else because there's so much more here, have the ability to treat first aid. One of the big things these guys dealt with was they had no first aid experience, they had no equipment to treat one another, and they were dealing with a complexity of mass casualty uh, events. Uh, one of the accounts is from a survival, one of the survivors who later became a doctor. And, and he practiced medicine, and he still practices uh, medicine today. Uh, he's, a, he's a survivor. When you, when you look at these people who survived, a lot of them were using skills that they picked up, but they didn't have formal training. Because back then in the 70s, especially in their country, you didn't have a formal regime of civilians getting trained in tactical combat casualty care or first aid. That doesn't exist anymore. In, in this country in America, you could Google any type of first aid training and get higher advanced levels of training, even more than uh, academics and institutions train. I mean, you, can get, you could get more EMT certifications and not even be an EMT as a civilian. And that's awesome. But also have the training and have the equipment on hand. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to selfishly plug us because you can get the training and the equipment from us. Um, and it's one of the best selling items that we sell, which is tourniquets and stop the bleed kits. We also have vehicle trauma response kits that has more advanced levels of care and providing that equipment. Don't neglect that. I mean, yeah, it's cool and sexy to get the guns, shoot, move, communicate, all that stuff. But that's less likely than this circumstance or any circumstance in disaster all the way to your back backyard accident. So, um, if I'm going to leave you any advice, is have that at a minimum if you're going to if you're going to start somewhere in the right direction. My book, Prepared, talks all, all about this as a manual for surviving worst case scenarios. Also, if you're subscribed, if you're not subscribed to the newsletter, make sure you do so for Phil Craft Survival. I'll leave the link down below because all of these episodes tethered to the things that we're doing in future content, including more YouTube content on survival. You could access anytime, but you got to get the notification because you got to be subscribed to our newsletter. That's in the link down below. Hey, I appreciate you guys. Appreciate all the companies and partners that support us. Big shout out to SIG, uh, Black Rifle Coffee Company, um, all, all the companies that support Philcraft Survival. We couldn't do it without you guys. We're looking forward to a 2024 and kicking this off. Thanks. Till next time. Peace out.